Welcome to the intersection of Black culture and horticulture with your girl, Cola B. Talking. And guess what, y'all? We Black in the Garden. You have arrived at the intersection of Black culture and horticulture with your girl, Cola B. Talking, hostess with the mostest of Black in the Garden. Hey, what's going on? Welcome to the Black in the Garden podcast, where we celebrate the past, present, and future of Black folks with plants. We talk about horticulture, agriculture, everything in between. We are here for all of that. I am Cola B. Talkin, a.k.a. your hostess with the mostest, a.k.a. Agave Aficionado, a.k.a. Georgian Natswater. And you are welcome, welcome, welcome. Now, whether you're an OG listener who's been tuned in since before the pandemic or you just found out, you are not too late because we got lots to talk about. Okay, lots and lots to talk about as we're getting into this new season. It is the season of bloom. And I'm so glad that you're here with me to be a part of this here journey. So on today's episode, we are joined by Julius Tillery. He is a fifth generation cotton farmer. Did you hear what I said? Let me say it again. Fifth generation cotton farmer with a passion for community and a mission to bridge the knowledge gap between consumers and producers. So you're going to learn about how he's using his creativity to reshape the perception of cotton and find out how he's connecting his product with tradition and culture. Very, very important things. So I want you to make sure that you're supporting the podcast. Be sure that you share your feedback with me because I love to hear from you. I say this all the time. Recording a podcast just kind of feels like I'm in a silo. I'm actually recording myself doing it right now just to get that BTS footage going on. Anyway, you're tuned in. I want to hear from you in real time as you're listening, right? This podcast is not recorded live, but you can listen to it and you can give me your feedback by texting 833-819-3926. This number is specifically for you to link directly to me for questions and comments. Your critique is fine too, but be nice, all right? I love to hear from y'all, but constructive criticism is the way to go. You know, we can always be respectful about the thing. Once again, save that in your phone, 833-819-3926. I know the number. Let me get it right. 833-819-3926. I love to hear from you. And I want you to also share the podcast publicly. And we're going to get into why. So some of the ways that you can share publicly is obviously social media. Now you can share at the grocery store as far as I'm concerned in the store in the parking lot down to the soccer games at the mall. I don't know where y'all be at. I mean, I'm hoping, hoping, I know words. We're going to leave that in. I know words. Uh, (laughs) When you're out and about doing things at festivals, you know, we be outside these days. When you're doing stuff, connecting with the people, people you care about, people maybe you just got to know, especially if you can recognize that you have similar interests that are connected to black culture and horticulture, plants, agriculture, you know, all that stuff that I said at the top. Those are the people you should be sharing with. That's the tribe. That's who we want to know about the Black in the Garden podcast, because it helps us to grow the audience. Okay, now I was just talking about in person, but obviously social media, everything. There's so many platforms now. I could try to list them all. I'm still going to forget one. Let's try it. YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn, um, Twitter, X, Twitter. We still tweeting as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, go ahead and tweet about it. You can find all my handles in the episode notes. If your hands are free, great. If they're not free as you're listening, I get it. I be folding clothes too. Okay. I be out there pulling weeds up out of the garden and sweating and swatting gnats away. Okay. Sometimes your hands are busy when you're listening, but that's why I put all of the information that you need in the episode notes. So when you're sharing, you are helping in all the ways that you share because you're sharing, right? Raise your hand if you're sharing. Good. I see you. 
Now, when you do that, you're helping us to grow the audience and that helps us to sustain the show with stuff like more sponsorship opportunities. You know, it's not free to make a podcast, especially if you want to make it at a certain uh, quality and y'all deserve that. You know, you deserve for when you listen and you're not hearing all this crackling in the background and you deserve a nice, smooth, buttery, clean sound. It costs money to make all of that. And when we have extra sponsors that we get as a result of growing our audience, growing our engagement, getting good reviews, it comes back to you in the form of high quality episodes. Hello. And exciting new guests and everything I could do to make you proud. Okay. So it's literally the circle of life and everybody wins. Now, did you know BTW? That the theme song, the Black in the Garden theme song is available on Instagram and TikTok. I made it so easy for y'all to engage, to share, get into it. You make your video in the garden, doing what you do at the Botanical Garden, wherever you at. That song that you heard when it first came on that you was bopping to, I know you was bopping. I see your head nodding. Okay. Did I really see you? Let's let's stay on track. But (laughs) the theme song is available on Spotify. Shout out to Spotify. I want to say Apple Music, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it's literally a single. Okay. So with that being the case, that is how you can go to your Instagram to make your reel, go to your TikTok to make your TikTok. Please look for the Black in the Garden theme song. You know, everybody else is trending on there. Why we can't trend? Okay. Helping us once again, increasing engagement, growing our audience and in turn, sustaining the show period. All right. And we love that. So on our last episode, we were discussing the botanical legacy of Harriet Tubman. And there was so much that I learned that I couldn't even fit it all into the episode because not all of it really matched with the theme. Um, If you don't know, maybe pause this, go back and listen, catch up. I'm not going to spoil it for you. But what I will say is that we have started this season with Black in the Garden trivia. And we're doing that on Instagram Live. You can find the handle in the episode notes. It's at Black in the Garden. You should be following me there. You should be engaging. You should be sharing the stuff. But make sure that you are following. Turn your notifications on if you're into that. Do it for me. And you can know when the next trivia is coming up. Pay attention to this conversation because there will be a quiz, but a fun quiz, a trivia style quiz where you can win prizes. We had some prize winners last week. Their prizes actually on the way to them as we speak right now. If you want a prize, shout out to you because very likely you are a listener of this show. Hello. And we had a great time. And yes, we will also give out prizes again on this upcoming Black in the Garden recap, where you will have the opportunity to win prizes. At this time, we are putting it on Instagram Live and let's have a good time. Come and engage with me live. You can ask me questions. I'm not going to be the only one asking questions. I love good real-time engagement, okay? But y'all, I'm just so excited to get into the episode to share this conversation that I had with Julius with y'all this amazing and captivating journey of cotton from field to fashion, if you will. Mm, You don't have like from farm to table, from field to fashion. We did kind of get into a little bit of that, you know, um, not trying to spoil it. I'm hoping that in hearing this conversation, it could reshape the way that you perceive cotton, which you very likely are even wearing right now and its significance in our lives. So without further ado, appreciate y'all so much. Hope that y'all appreciate this conversation and all the effort that went into it. Shout out to Julius. Shout out to Breaking Ground on PBS. Let's get into this interview. Hey, Soil Cousins, welcome to this episode of Black in the Garden podcast. Today we have a special guest. All of our guests are special, but uh, special in their own unique ways. We have not had a guest of the caliber of Julius Tillery, who we will be speaking with today. I want to tell you a little bit about Julius, but the thing that brought my attention to uh, Julius is that he is a cotton farmer, but not just like he just figured it out a few years ago, a fifth generation 
cotton farmer. And, you know, here on Black in the Garden, that is um, a subject that we would be remiss to not touch on. But he's more than a farmer. Julius is also an educator, an activist, and really a, a man of community and a man of integrity. From Roanoke Valley, North Carolina, Black Cotton was founded in 2016 to honor his roots and promote Black grown cotton. Okay, because we need more of that. And he leads the Black Cotton team from the headquarter in Garysburg, North Carolina. Shout out to all of our Afro-Carolinians is what we like to call them. And Julius oversees all matters related to the business and its opportunities. And I'm very curious, we'll get into this, about Julius being the North Carolina State Coordinator for the Black Family Land Trust and in doing as much having a career that is focused on working as an advocate and a resource provider in the North Carolina agriculture and environmental sectors since 2009. So very excited to have you on the show. Julius, thank you so much for joining us on Black in the Garden. Right, thank, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here to speak to y'all today. How are you feeling? Pretty good. You know, I got my crops planted. Now it's just about maintaining them and um, getting it to the end line. I know you're more than a cotton farmer. That is just more like the entree to what we're curious about in this episode. But in considering the impact that you've had and the impact that you would like to have, tell us more about the series that you are featured on on PBS. Yeah, PBS has a, a new docu-series called Human Footprint. It's a six-episode mm-hmm. docu-series where each episode is investigating something about how humans affect the world. You know, our, our species of humans mm-hmm. has dramatically changed the world in so many ways. The first episode was about invasive species, and it's going to be a great, great show. You, like The uh, host of the show is a black man, Dr. Shane. He's awesome. He's a, a professor mm-hmm. uh, at Princeton, uh, a biology professor. Shane Campbell. Staten. He has a deep understanding of science, but nice. also wants to look at how how we as humans affect the world in so many ways. Not a boring show. It has a, a very hip vibe to it, and it's very human. And they're not trying to bias people in any direction. They just want to get information so we can make our own decisions. So, and I'm excited to be on the season finale, episode six. Episode six is about cotton, and I'm one of the stars in this episode. Of course, because. That episode is all about cotton, so that is definitely a great time for you to shine. Mm-hmm. And I'm wearing my shirts. The mm-hmm. shirt we have in partnership with Vans in the stem. It has cotton is our culture, which is one of the catchphrases for black cotton. And at the bottom corner, mm-hmm. we got Black Acres. That's the clothing line. So. I love that. Black Acres. Yeah. Black Acres really resonates with me as a brand because of the implication of ownership, Black land ownership, Black land equity. And episode six is going to be the season finale for the first season, focusing on the history and science of cotton. The name of the episode is called The Ground Below. And we cannot wait to see Julius featured there. We'll see you wearing your t-shirt in that Yes, episode. I, I wear a black one and I wear a white one. So <laughs> it's going to be a great mm, episode. Okay, angles. We certainly want to talk with you about some different aspects of what you do. So we're getting right into it. You got crops planted. Tell us more about all of the crops besides cotton that you grow. Of course, you know, cotton is a focal point for us, but you grow other things as well. Well, uh, our main crops on our farm is cotton and soybeans. And uh, we do some leafy green vegetables in the fall and spring. You know, sometimes we do some other vegetable crops, but we do about an acre of, crop, of vegetable crops in the garden, and we do soybeans and cotton. That's pretty much my farm enterprise. Okay, soybeans, cotton, yeah, leafy greens. Co- yeah, collard greens. So let's get into the roots of it all, because I know that in keeping this family legacy going for five generations— you definitely had to be intentional about having that kind of connection. So as I indicated when I was introducing you, 
that you are, you started blackcotton.us. I'm sorry, I should have been more mm-hmm. specific about that. It is blackcotton.us LLC is the name of the farm business. Um, but you started it or you founded it rather in 2016 to honor your roots and promote black grown cotton. Absolutely. Let's get and, into know, it. Even with the name blackcotton.us, that's what our website domain is, blackcotton.us. And that's why I wanted to decide to name the business because I wanted to stand out as we're the black cotton in the U.S. That's us. You know what I mean? Something that people just recognize us for. But mm-hmm. People call it, commonly call us black cotton because we are that. Indeed. Indeed. I'm curious about that because, you know, you have so many generations. To hear a fifth generation anything indicates that it's going back into history. You know, I, I can just imagine what those albums look like. Like, is there documentation of all of that? Very curious to know how you feel that growing cotton in 2023 is connecting you with your roots. Well, and even like the connections that like documentation, I don't know much of our history before our first generation, but I know my grandfather's grandfather because he's buried on our farm, on a, a part of our farm. You know what I mean? Like I don't, mm-hmm. I didn't go through records to know this. I actually know because of you know uh, gravestone. Uh, his son is Julius Tillery. That's the uh, that's my great grandfather. So the first generation, the second generation, they moved from Tillery, North Carolina, to uh, where our farm is located right now. Well, the first part of where our farm located. So it's like multiple plots, but uh, the first plot of the farm, mm-hmm. that's where the first generation and the second generation, they moved together in the early 1900s. And my grandfather was the first one born on a family farm. Our family farm is located in Rich Square, North Carolina. It's like a couple towns over beside Garysburg. Okay. Yeah. We're really getting into the North Carolina geography. You mentioned Garysburg. Then Rich Square. Where are you at this moment? Right now I'm in Garysburg. But uh, the other town I mentioned was Tillery, North Carolina, like my last name. Yeah. So that's Your the namesake. town as well. Yeah, my namesake. So if you meet black folks with the last name Tillery, a lot of us descended from Tillery plantations, you know, somewhere. And so and just bringing up just the term plantation and having a conversation like this with an expert such as yourself, I understand that plantations and the, the forced labor of our ancestors to be involved in cotton cultivation is definitely a sore spot for many Black people. It's just there's different ways, and I'm sure you've seen this way more than me, um, in the ways that Black people even respond at the thought of growing cotton And so with the understanding of that negative kind of like ideal or stereotype or association, how has that shaped the way that you engage with people when you are discussing your work, engaging with Black people in particular? Because I'm curious about how white people respond as well. (laughs) Well, so my name, say, descends from slavery. But, you know, like when I tell you I'm a fifth generation mm. cotton farmer, all five of this generation has been f- born free from slavery. So the first generation, his mm-hmm. parents were slaves. But for him, the very important thing that he did for my family was bought the first part plot of our family farm. And cotton is a crop of our area. Like my county, we're the second most producing county in the state. And the number one producing county is right beside us where Tillery is located. So we're in a cotton producing area. So. The reason we produce cotton is because that's what our area is known for. And that's what we have the infrastructure to, mm-hmm. you know, be a farmer and grow that crop to have somebody to buy it. So we've just been in the farming business since my first generation. This is all free men deciding to do this. It's not like something we was made to do. And, you know, trying to. Uh, I love trying that. To, so when I talk. So when I had to learn about myself. To promote this business, I had to realize that when I call myself a fifth generation farmer, that's a fifth generation free from slavery that decided to do this job, not like something we was forced upon us. You know what I'm saying? And I felt like one of the Mm. first things I needed to do with this business is tell people and create an environment where cotton is not negative. Because I was raising this crop all my life, but I looked down in farming for a long time. Like I I looked at it as my, my dirty chore. You know, people like in the media, they make farming seem so bad and 
like you know is so poor and so uneducated mm. and i had to start changing the perspective of how i saw myself because i didn't want to be a, a lifelong sad farmer so it, when i start looking <laughs> into my history i realized there's a lot of strength in being in this industry like the people who done well you know and, or just be able to survive in this industry took an incredible amount of strength and to be able to have a farm in the 21st century as a black person, that means that some of your family members had to have incredible strength and made incredible sacrifices because it's not easy to have a farm. So I had to change that negative perspective off the top of how farmers even looked at and how we perceive these crops because cotton didn't treat people bad. It's other people treating people like tools. That's the problem in the industry. Mm. You really just uh, said quite a word there and the intentionality and the having to <clears throat> get very clear about how you were going to move in the space um, and being very intentional about not being a sad farmer, not being shameful about being involved in the thing that you're doing that I'm sure some would try to shame you for. I know that when it comes to and this is just me speaking from my perspective as a Black person who doesn't know anything about it. And I'm pretty close because I don't know that much. But I'm just considering how uh, a Black person may have certain kind of ideas about why you're involved in, in how much agency you have and how much prosperity you have or the level of satisfaction that you have with doing what you do. And Julius, I just love it so much that you said that you did not want to be another sad farmer because I'm not sure the general public is aware of the fact that mental health struggles among farmers is exponentially greater. Something I learned in just doing some research on Jewel Brona who was in a very high position at the USDA, I believe second in command. And one of her one of her main platforms was how she helped farmers with their mental health and created programs so that farmers have more access to mental health resources. And your experience in farming or with other farmers, is that something that you have witnessed firsthand, understanding that there are mental health challenges that are present? Absolutely. I mean, shoot, this go back a long time. I mean, you know, you, you can look at what some farmers going through, like they get a, a contract canceled on them, you know, like they can lose money, bankruptcy, hmm. stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's very deep when it comes in the agriculture field. But then you also got the notions of how people just perceive you in general at being involved with the industry. So some folks see it as negative. Some people see it as positive. So I had to personally figure out a way to see the positive in what I'm doing because I didn't just want to be doing it and feel negative about doing it. You definitely have to take care of yourself first because if you are not in the best state of mind, the best state of health, then how is your farm going to be in the best state of health? You are a leader and a big decision maker and being in the position that you're in. So you definitely got to be on point with that. So I know that we talked a little bit about how you are perceived by Black people when you discuss your involvement in cotton in the agricultural industry. How are you received mm -hmm. when you are just going on about your day, maybe getting a muffin from the bakery, casual chit chat with a nice, let's say a young 30-ish year old white lady, and you tell her that you're a cotton farmer? Does she take you seriously? Is there a weird look on her face? How does that go? You know, I feel like land ownership looks strong in general. So the farmer, uh, the perception around the farmer has changed a lot, and People used to perceive farmers as low-educated people, but to be a farmer in today's world, it takes so much understanding of science and so many uh, so many measurements you have to take. Like Typically, people who inherit land are the smartest folks in their family. You don't give it to the slowest person, but the concept of a <laughs> farmer used to be the, the uneducated. I mean, that's people with PhDs is, is, is running farms and master's degrees. I mean, usually the most successful person in the family is the one that's going to be running the farm in 21st century. I love this connection between indicating that the person who inherits the land is generally the one who is considered the most competent. I never thought about it like that. 
<laughs> Where are you in your sibling lineup? I'm only child. My dad's the only son. He got three sisters. Was it a very smooth transition for you to acquire the land that you currently farm on? Yeah, we all work together. I mean, it's roads to this stuff. You know, mm-hmm. like, heirs' property is an issue that's in the black community, in the black landowner community, but really the issue comes up when you're trying to get money for the land. If your family recognizes you in the farm mm-hmm. business, you typically work together. I see a whole lot of family dynamics and issues in farm land ownership, especially, like, you know, with the resource shops, I have, like, black family land trusts. You know, not all families get along together. Not all people want to hold on to land. Some people don't want to pay taxes. Like I said, to own a a farm, it requires sacrifice. Yeah, I believe that. That is something that many people may be able to assume, but um, we try not to keep so many assumptions in play as we're having conversations on Black in the Garden. What happens with land inheritance, is that related to the work that you do with Black Family Land Trust? Somewhat. We ha- we have people that uh, we have connections to legal resources that helps families sort out heirs' property issues, uh, help them sort out creating family trusts for, for their farm ownerships to make their farms run better and be able to use it to be able to get resources. So it's a lot of different pieces that come around land ownership and how families going to direct it. But we try to help the small black family farm stay alive and stay in the marketplace. Was there a particular experience that you had in farming or in your family that made you feel compelled to be involved in providing those kind of resources to other small black farmers in that way? Well, growing up, my great grandfather, uh, he, he he passed away before I was born. And his gravestone is like, like in the middle of, between my grandparents and great-grandparents' house. And I used to always see his name in that gravestone. It's the same name as mine. And I always hear stories about how he helped get the farm to what is that. So I always felt compelled to help my family farm stay alive. I always had it in my head that it's going to be on me one day. So just going ahead and getting, getting started before it's necessary that I had to start. You know what I mean? If you stay ready, you ain't got to get ready. Is that what you're saying? Pretty much, because if you got to get ready, it might be too late. <laughs> I mean, and and can we speak to that? Like, when I say to a cotton farmer, if you stay ready, you ain't got to get ready. In the agricultural sense, think about where you're at right now. What does that entail? What's the recent time when you benefited from staying ready? I mean, prices go up and down on cotton all the time, and... For me to be able to make a living, I just had to be able to plan out how I could use my products in a, a wiser way to make a better pricing and make a living for my family. So, you know, just having the creativity mm-hmm. and understanding that uh, we could sell this as home decor and not sell all of it conventionally, that's helped maintain space economically for my family and my cousins and all of us to be able to make some money, more money off the farm than we, we would have never imagined making just doing it conventionally. I love the creativity. That is literally like my favorite part. I I want to say this about the creativity of what we're doing. Nobody has ever came to my okay. family and gave us a unique opportunity in cotton. Not one time. Like, that's why it's important I'm saying this, because, like, there's not opportunities given in these row crop enterprises. You have to come up with your own type of unique opportunity if that's what you want. Listen, for Black people, innovation generally is something that comes from necessity. There was a train. (laughs) That was... (laughs) We're going to leave the train in. I like the train. But check this. Like, even, like, how many of us complain... Like, our our ancestors complain about sharecropping and stuff like that, right? I didn't see no innovation in cotton. Like, they were still just, Mm -hmm. just selling it to conventional wholesale broker. For so many years and decades, and we could complain about things being so hard, but what were we doing different to make the industry work for us? Because if we're going to do it, why can't we try to create new ways around it? And like, sometimes I think, man, I should have been right there, right after slavery and been like, hey, y'all, we're not doing it like how they taught us to do it anymore. We're going to make our own rules on how we're going to do it. Maybe it'll work. Maybe I would have been assassinated. I don't know. But... I know in today's world, ain't nobody trying to kill me for, for for trying to find a new way for cotton. Why do you suppose that is? Ain't nobody pressed about you innovating in the cotton industry now. Why do you suppose that in is? The industry, 
it's so big and what I'm doing is such a small part to the industry for, you know, such few people that do it now. Like cotton industry used to have hundreds of thousands of people working in it, if not millions. Now it's such a small population that works in the industry that, you know, like where we get creative ideas from it is from such a small pack of people now. Because so many people are so foreign to cotton production now. Like they don't have no clue about it. They don't have no understanding of about it. That like we can be mystified with all types of thoughts about cotton production because we don't have no understanding of it anymore. Okay, let's get into it because that was actually my next question. Can you talk us through a little bit through the life cycle? And I want to use a specific product, the life cycle of a t-shirt from it actually coming from the field. Is that something that you can illustrate for us listeners yes i want to get into all that deep stuff there's a lot of myths around cotton so first off cotton farmers don't directly work with uh these cotton any shirt brands that that produces clothes you know what i'm saying that's textile business like typically the cotton mm-hmm. farmer gets their cotton out of the field by a combine you know, like a two-row or four-row combine they have these module bales that set up. You know, they could be circular or they could be rectangle, right? These big bales. And the cotton gin that's connected to the cotton co-op comes pick up the cotton from the farmer's uh, farm. They gin the cotton. And whatever that gin amount is what the cotton farmers pay for in rural cotton price or by the broker. It's something really small. That's it. The cotton farmers don't talk to the shirt dealers or anything like that. Now, these cotton cooperatives, they, they deal with these textile companies that buy the yarn or turn it into yarn. But what I'm doing is I'm controlling my gin cotton, making partnerships with textile yarn spinners, and then sending it to a textile factory to turn it into a shirt. And that is what percentage of your crops would you say go in that direction? Or can you say? Right now, about 95% goes into conventional cotton crop. So I've did business with Vans, and so of that percentage of cotton that's conventional, it's maybe twenty five percent. But we're changing fat rapidly, depending on the demand and how our partnership goes. So, but traditionally with my business, most of our cotton went to conventional. But then we would save like for the home decor, maybe like two or three percent of my cotton crop, and and, that's, and even that's a lot. You know, because cotton goes far, like when it comes to making bouquets and making reefs and stuff like that. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because I definitely wanted to get into the decorative aspect of it next. That was the thing that really drew my attention to you. Besides me first being like, oh, shit, a black cotton farmer. Tell me more. And then I saw that you were being intentional about using the cotton for a decorative purpose. Um, but also in using it for a decorative purpose, we're not trying to shy away from the way that it can be a conversation starter and the way that you understand, yes, it can be controversial to those who it is controversial to. But here we are considering BlackCotton.us LLC being a purveyor of cotton for decorative purposes. Can you just explain that that to our soil cousins a little bit better because I'm just excited and letting them know how I thought it was so fly. Well, what we're doing is using the cotton basically like like a dry floral product. I've seen in different arts and craft stores cotton being used, but it's not actually real cotton. It's actually like this Asian produced stuff that looks like cotton, but it's not even real products. Like it's glued into it. So I felt like if there was like this Asian made product to look like cotton, we could actually take real cotton and just let them use that with the real seeds in it and the real stalks. And we're making bouquets, making um, reefs with it, all types of centerpieces that has a, a floral look to it. And the good thing about cotton is once it's dried out, it doesn't go bad. As long as it's not getting wet or anything, it can last a long time. So it's really cool when you're doing like floral pieces for prom events, like corsages and yeah. what's the other name? Uh brooches. Yeah, bou- uh, bouquets, floral arrangements. Yes. There's a lot of ways yes. that floral um artists are getting very creative in in what they do with the materials. So yeah, we wanted people to know I'm- that you can get cotton products that look fly and have a meaning behind it because you know it's a black person that created this product. I can think about our 
previous soil cousin, uh, John Caleb Pendleton. Y'all may remember him if you were listening to an episode where we were discussing floral artistry. He's gone on to do some really amazing floral installations at, say, like Black Landmarks, for example. And so I'm just saying all that to say there's a connection that will be made there because I know that he would love to work with you. So I'm just putting that out. The decorative aspect of it. Wow. Uh, What do you do in your home that incorporates cotton decoratively from your straight from your own field? I love that. Just put uh, like the the basis of clear basis of cotton and our branding up there. Nothing too much, but you know, just having it in the home and people who have it in their homes, it gives like some good spirit to it. Usually, mm-hmm. a conversation piece, but it also stays there looking pretty. Like something you don't have to constantly change, like a floor piece with real flowers in there. You know, right. that's going to go bad in like a week or two. Yeah, can so it I, be I dyed to, or? Add we some tried to it? that. I mean, yeah, you could do put glitter to it, but I like to keep the cotton natural <laughs> because it has a nice, the natural beauty in it on itself. Like a lot of people say, like you just have a natural, beautiful cotton, it's just gonna look pretty by itself for a long time. Like I used to tell guys, you give yeah. this to a girl, she's gonna keep it forever, and she'll keep you around forever. <laughs> Any testimonies to that? <laughs> All right, here's another thing. Well, if you're listening so, and you're trying to figure it out, go for it. Go ahead. I'm sorry. They're supposedly your second year anniversary is supposedly called your cotton anniversary. And some people get stuff from me because they've heard of this cotton anniversary gift. And you give something that's made with cotton and it's supposed to mean that your your relationship's going to last forever. So I've heard See? that one before. See, there is something to it. And I love that you're in tune with that because you should know as much as there is to know about the cultivation of cotton, obviously, as a farmer, but as um ways that it is significant culturally. I love that you're an innovator, finding creative ways to do something different with the crops that you're growing and have people think about them differently and engage with the product differently. And I'm also curious about what innovation looks like as far as you're aware. When it comes to the cotton industry, I know you say that there is not a lot of new or different things that are going on and there's not a lot of change makers there, would you consider yourself to be a pioneer in innovation in cotton? Or can you speak to a person or company that is doing something different that you're really excited about that you would like to implement or have recently implemented? Do you want to hear something controversial? Always. All right. So my business is about keeping it real and telling 100 about where we are in the industry. Like, black people got out of the cotton industry once the combine was created. The combine took us out of hand-picking cotton business. You know, the combine is a powerful tool because it does this hard work all the way back to the the beginning of this country's history. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. there's this notion that some people believe right now that there's black people that are in prison picking cotton in certain places. That does not exist. Like, the combine is so powerful— and it's such a, an expensive tool. Like, I live by a prison, right? Like, Odom mm-hmm. Prison. And no, I've never seen any prisoners pick cotton. Like, that, like I've had people from all over the country come to my farm. One of the first things they ask me is, do prisoners pick this cotton? And I'm like, no. Black people, I've never seen black people pick cotton. And I was born in 1986. Now I'm not, And there was still black people picking cotton, but it was at the very end of it. Like, there was this thing called scrapping or strapping cotton. We get that very bit that the cotton combines doesn't pick up. But like, so then, you know, there's this notion like that. I saw a video, of a young black guy. He said he like he was in a prison and they made him pick cotton. I was And I, I the person who posted the video, I put in the comments, Cap, this guy ain't picked no cotton. And she was like, you can't speak on the experience of black men and you calling him a liar and this and that. And I was like, no, I just know the industry. Black people like it. To imagine a few black people, prisoners picking cotton like our ancestors, that's the first of all taken away from how our ancestors worked. Like anybody who did pick cotton, they would tell you they would pick 100 pounds for $3, uh, $3, right? And they don't understand how hard our ancestors used to work. So I looked into this thing about these prisons that had black people picking cotton. And they even had a video of some guys in a field, right? And was, I guess that was supposed to be evidence of them picking cotton. I look at the field. They picking string beans. You know what I'm saying? They they wearing white tees and baggy pants and 
they picking string beans they probably going to eat in, in in the kitchen commissary you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. so like i like to attack false narratives around cotton you know what i'm saying cuz the industry is already hard enough like it's a poverty based industry we competing against the chinese who are literally picking hand picking cotton but they actually send thousands of people in the field to pick cotton not in the we don't have that workforce in America no more. So I like to tell truths about things. Like, so when you hear people talking about prisoners picking cotton, show, tell them to show you the evidence. Just like when I first started this business, right, I put a video of me in the cotton field. My dad was like, don't show this cotton field. It don't look that good. And I was like, dad, where the black man at that got cotton fields? They're going to show me better fields right now. And I'm like, I feel, I was like, hey, black guys, you got them. Show me the fields. Do you know how many people responded? Literally over the whole, to this date, too. I'm talking about guys, black guys who got cotton fields. You know what I'm saying? It's not a lot of black men that can show me their cotton fields. And we used to be in it heavy, but we're just not in it no more. Look up the difference between the number of black people that was farming cotton in 1910s versus 2020. Hundreds of thousands of people versus less than 100 now. You said two black farmers showed you their farm since you put out that call? Only two. And I know another and guy that does Have it, you connected with them? I, ain't seen, I, I, I know these guys. What I'm saying, it's more than just two, but most of them are older. They're not guys that just want to go online and show me their stuff. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. They don't have time. They don't, they're not of the generation of just taking pictures of crops and, and just showing people. Understandable. Are they boomers? Is that what it is? Boomers. Like most of the last, the mm-hmm. last of the Mohicans is mostly boomers. So, what does the contemporary cotton farmer look like these days? Are they all the older, you know, kind of stereotypical images that we have of farmers, or are they are there younger millennial white, cotton white farmers? and black? I'm talking about cotton farmers. In general, everybody tip, in a, in the United States, what a cotton farmer typically looks like is a white man around 50, 50 some years old that's working thousands of acres with a team. Might have like three, four, five, six guys working their tractors, but you know it's a small team, but they got big equipment. That goes back into that prison talk okay. thing. Most of the, the the cotton farmers they don't have time for no few people picking cotton. They got big combines, like million dollar pieces of equipment to pick cotton. They don't have no time for no. Few, few mm-hmm. black people in a field picking they like first of all of, of black people today of a guy that's in prison he ain't gonna pick no more than 10 pounds of cotton that, how you gonna get this guy to work that hard you know what I'm saying like it don't even it don't even make no logical like sense if you know the industry mm-hmm. no logistical yeah. sense yeah. I would be remiss as we're discussing like the technology around cotton cultivation to not mention Eli Whitney who is known as the inventor of the cotton gin, um, which was patented in 19, I mean, not 19, 1794 is when the Mm -hmm. cotton gin was patented and that revolutionized cotton production. What does the cotton gin look like in your operation today? Uh, Still very similar. I mean, the cotton, they have like these, like these things that sucks up cotton and it still goes into this cotton gin equipment that pulls all the seeds out. It's just been modernizing the, the equipment that does it, but it's still very the same process mm-hmm. of getting out the sticks and the stems and the and um the seeds out of cotton. But I don't I mean I, I don't have that. a cotton gin. Most farmers don't have a cotton gin. Cotton gins are very expensive equipment. I mean very expensive like process of the cotton. And so that's the piece of equipment that is used in the processing of the cotton after it has left your Operation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. See, no, I'm just trying to make some connections because, like, the layperson doesn't know this, and I'm the layperson. Okay, so (laughs) it's just that transfer of information that I'm very excited about, and I definitely wanted to talk a little bit more about like the fashion of it all and um, the thoughts that I had when I was considering way back when I first was trying to figure out like what am I going to talk to Julius about. I thought about how. Black people in particular, you know, we really do like to be sharp and fly and, and fashionable. And not just uh, do we enjoy being very savvy consumers of fashion. We also pride ourselves entrepreneurially in being creators of 
and entrepreneurs in the fashion industry and like creating fashion lines and, you know, everybody's got the t-shirts and stuff like that. And there's so many ways that we are involved with the textile of cotton. And I do understand that you're involved in the agricultural side and not the textile side, but I would love to hear your thoughts on what the disconnect is like between us as Black people as consumers of cotton versus being involved at different levels and higher up in the supply chain. What are your thoughts on the disconnect there? Well, we don't have no clue how much uh, technology is involved in it and like how expensive that technology is. And that's why so much of our clothing is made mm-hmm. in Asia because they have big system, big investment mm-hmm. into it and their workers are low cost. So we've lost all our like textile production. Most of it, like 99% of it in America, we've lost it. And some people are trying to bring it back, but it's really tough because it takes so much technology and cheap labor is easy. I mean, we got some of that going on in Mexico. They make some textile to, to finish products. But uh, in America, yeah. it's just really expensive. And in that expensive price, we we lost context and like of understanding the whole production behind the product. We don't have no clue. Most people don't. So, wow, let me let me just kind of summarize because you unpacked a bit. What you're saying is that not only has there been a very significant decrease in the last hundred years, hundred plus years, in the amount of uh, Black people who have been involved in cotton farming, cultivation, agriculturally. Um, Not only has there been a drastic decline in Black farmers being involved, but generally when it comes to the textile aspect of what happens with cotton on the agricultural side, and it goes into the textile part of the operation, uh, the part of the, that part of the process when I'm thinking about that life cycle of the t-shirt from the field, you're saying that the United States is not involved in textiles in a way that I previously thought that they were before you said what you said. Yeah. Like it used to be a lot of black people that worked in the, in the, in the textile mills. Like my grandma worked in textile mills. We're in an area that there used to be a lot of textile mills, but a lot of these mills closed. These jobs have went overseas and, you know, as closest as Mexico, but mostly over in Asia. Wow. We are getting into the knowledge of the things. That is, that's unexpected. I mean, I really just kind of believed that there were more opportunities for Black Americans to be involved in that aspect of uh, fashion. But it turns out that we would need to dig a lot deeper. That's like a whole nother podcast. But let me not trivialize what we're doing over here. We can... We can definitely find a way to get to the root of that. The root, as the elders would say, especially where you from, I imagine. (laughs) So I was just going to say us losing this connection with production, we would lose. We pretty much lost all understanding of what the value of this cotton is and how these products are even made. That's what I'm saying. People could tell us anything. We Mm -hmm. can believe anything about it because we have no we've lost 99 percent of connection to it. Absolutely. And let's figure out. Well, it's not like we're going to solve all the problems right now, but what would you say to someone who is listening who wants to determine how they maybe could get involved in cotton cultivation? Is it something that you would even advise? I mean, you know, any type of agricultural production, you know, if people want to learn more about it, I say look into it, start closely by your uh, agricultural cooperative extension that's close by. Like gardening is a gardening is the first step into getting into row cropping. Like if you can't garden, how are you gonna be able to get into row cropping? And if you're not into row cropping, how are you making crops on your farm? Like if you're making crops, like you have to do livestock or that's a good point. Something else. Like yeah, you definitely gotta level it up. Start start small. You know what I'm saying? For those of us who might just have a, a little sprig of mint, optimistically growing somewhere in a window, keep. You know, you never know what that might could lead to. <laughs> or for those who might have a, a a few plots or something like that, you never really know. But that's a good point. Start by activating your green thumb. Is that one way that you could say it? Absolutely. And really, it's levels to farm production. And I would say the very top level, the hardest to get into is commercial vegetable growing, like, like selling to like food lions and 
You know, like that is the hardest mm-hmm. level because, you know, like to imagine growing a corn crop and it can't have no worms in it. They'll throw your whole crop away if you had, they find too many worms. You have to master mm-hmm. vegetable growing. This ain't just like your garden and selling a little bit no. to a couple of neighbors. I'm talking about to be at a commercial level selling your product in a Harris Teeter. You know how That's much a large it, level operation. Yeah, so I'm not even saying it has to be large, but it has to be immaculate produced. You know what I'm saying? That level of understanding to be able to have your crops at that level. First of all, we don't even talking about like we don't have many black people at that level growing it. Those growing for grocery stores. How many black people you know growing that, anything? that crops growing their crops to go to grocery stores? Like 99% of the crops we see in these grocery stores is coming from like, white farmers. I know that's definitely great for another episode. But what I can say right now is that I don't think that it's best for our communities, our black communities, to be so heavily involved in that scale of agriculture. And I have very specific reasons around that, but it has a lot to do with like the sustainability aspect of having your food come from a more local source and the way that, like you said, when we consider like the innovation and the creativity around how we're going to connect with the people who are actually going to receive our product when we're trying to think about how we would connect with them. It's a much more organic, like literally organic connection to make when we are able to get our food from the person who grows it directly. You know, when we start getting into grocery stores and stuff, that's like middle people. But I don't want to get mired into that too much. Mm-hmm. At this point, you are now officially a Black in the Garden Black spurt. Okay, welcome in. And uh, this episode means a a lot to me for so many reasons. Julius is really awesome dude. Beyond a farmer, just a really great guy, a man of integrity and of community. And, you know, we need more people like that in our communities and in our world. So can you tell us what our soil cousins can do to be more knowledgeable about blackcotton.us and how we can support you? Absolutely. Follow us on Instagram at blackcotton.us. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash blackcottondecor. Uh, you can go to our website, www.blackcotton.us. But yeah, definitely our social medias. Send us messages, you know, like our pictures. You know, anytime you want to get out, man, just send me a message and I'll respond right back to you. You know, you go to our website and it says contact us. You send me a message there, I'll email you back. Just like that. I love that. That website is going to give us everything that we need. I'm assuming that you'll be updating it once your episode comes out on PBS. And the name of that series is Human Footprint, hosted by Shane Campbell Statton. He's a Princeton professor. That's what's up. All of that information will be indicated in the show notes. And thank you again for your time and for joining us on the Black in the Garden podcast. Every guest that I speak to and every soil cousin that is listening at the end, we always want to wish you love, light, and soil. Peace, y'all. Thank you for the time.